1: first got interested in Buddhism when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was in the mid-60s. When I finished my time there, I had started going to the Buddhist temples and just had my first briefest taste of meditation. Came back home, started to practice by myself, and realized very quickly that I needed a teacher because I was just getting very confused. I was mixing up a lot of different things. So I went back to Asia, thinking I would go back to Thailand. But on the way, I stopped in India. I had been given the names of various teachers and ashrams. So I went on this little tour to these places. Uh, I went up to the mountains, to the hill stations. This was in December. I didn't realize it would be winter up there, so I was just going in my summer clothes, and up in Dalhousie it was freezing, and the Tibetans had all gone south. So I left there, I went to Sikh ashram, and wasn't quite right. Came back to New Delhi, didn't know what to do. I was gonna walk down to the airline office and go back to Thailand, as I was walking, it was just some force that stopped me. It's, it was quite an unusual experience. I couldn't take another step forward. You know, It was, it was unusual, it hadn't happened to me that way before. So I turned around, went back, had the thought, I'll go to Benares and I'll just sit by the Ganges and contemplate my future. Went there, leaving, was gonna go back to Delhi and just On the way to the train station, I had the thought, I'm going to go to Bodh Gaya, which was in the other direction. Go to Bodh Gaya. At that time, this was in 1960, 1967. Very few Westerners there. Very small village. I go into the town, you know, and of course this is the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. I meet some people who tell me they're studying with this guy named Munindraji. And I had, of course, not heard of him, had no idea who he was. But they take me to the Burmese Vihara. It was kind of a resting, rest house for Burmese pilgrims, but Burma at that time was closed, so it was pretty empty, except for these few Western travelers. Go, and we are sitting with Manindraji up on the roof of this Vihara. And he goes around to this very small group of people, asking each one of us in turn, why did we come? You know, what's, what's our aspiration? What's, what's our aim in practice? And people had lots of different aims. I was, I was quite surprised. You know, they came for a lot of different reasons. But for me, the aspiration, the aim was so clear. You know, and I, I told them, I've really come for awakening, for enlightenment. That, that was my aspiration. So he then went on to just describe the basic technique of Vipassana, the meditation practice that we're doing. And from that very first time of instruction, for me, it felt just like coming home. It was exactly what I was looking for. Because it seemed to me the simplest, although not necessarily easy, but the simplest and most direct way of looking at this mind and body. Now, there were no elaborate rituals or ceremonies or elaborate practices. It was just sitting down and observing. So this was, this was a very powerful uh, introduction because it was a way of directly seeing for myself what were the causes of suffering in my life and the possibility of being free. So it seemed very direct. This Vipassana practice, and there are many, many methods of Vipassana. There are over 50 different ways, techniques of doing Vipassana. They are all rooted in one discourse of the Buddha. Which, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, is called the Satipatthana Sutta. And he begins this discourse with what to me is an amazingly bold, an unambiguous statement. The Buddha said bhikkhus, just a footnote here, in the description or the commentary to the sutta, it says that bhikkhus here refers to anyone who is practicing. Anyone who is doing the practice is in Included in this term bhikkhus, so he's really talking to us He said bhikkhus This is the direct path for the purification of beings For the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation For the disappearance of dukkha and discontent For the attainment of the true way For the realization of nibbana Namely, the four Satipatthanas. So given the magnitude and the import of this statement, which opens the sutta, this is the direct path to realization. I thought it would be useful over these next weeks, I'm not sure how long it will stretch out, to explore this sutta in detail because it is the Buddha's direct teaching to us, those who are practicing, on the direct way, the direct path to awakening. I'd like to use the Buddha's words in this discourse really to help guide us in our own understanding and in our practice. I'll be drawing a lot From a book I've read recently, which is a commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta, and it's called Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization, by a German monk, his name is Venerable Analayo. And he has, or was studying in Sri Lanka, and he did his PhD thesis in Sri Lanka on this sutta. And so I think the book is actually kind of a, an edited version of his thesis. But it's really wonderful. As I read it, it was just tremendously inspiring to me because it opened up in ways that I had not fully appreciated the range and the depth of what's contained in it. When we look at this sutta, the Satipatthana sutta, we find that all of the Buddhist teachings are contained within it. And is tremendously rich. And I think part of the Buddha's genius in his teaching was that when we open any one door into the Dharma, it actually leads to all the rest. Now, so we can, we can look at the Dharma from any perspective, and if we open that door it just expands to the whole. So to begin the exploration of this discourse, I just want to start with a look at some words in it that are very familiar to us, but might have a slightly different slant in terms of their translation. So the first of these words is Satipatthana itself. Known as you know, it's usually translated as the foundations of mindfulness. And so what we're practicing are the four foundations of mindfulness. But it's been suggested that that's perhaps not exactly the right translation. And that a better one derived from Nepali would be attending with mindfulness or abiding in mindfulness. So we could say the four abidings of mindfulness, rather than foundation. I might think, well, what's, what's the difference here? I think there's a subtle shift. Because when we think of satipetana as attending with mindfulness, or abiding in mindfulness, it gives more emphasis to the attitude of being aware than to the object. And we can see how this could play itself out in our understanding of the practice as we try to find the balance (laughs) between mindfulness as plunging into the object and mindfulness as resting in awareness. Now, there's nuances here. So what are we actually doing with our minds in the practice? Are we plunging in? Are we settling back? And as we explore further the sutta, we'll see that at different times, we want to be using one or another of these aspects What well, is the first word to consider, satipatthana, and what it means? Abiding in mindfulness, the four abidings, emphasizing the awareness side. Second term is one which we're all very familiar with. And it's really central to. the current understanding of our present situation and the possibility of freedom, and that is the Pali word dukkha. As the Buddha said, this is the direct path for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent. So usually we translate the word dukkha as suffering. That's the most common Translation. There's a very interesting derivation from the Pali of what this word means. And when I read it, I was, it was kind of you know, interesting and a little uh, startling to me. The prefix du, du, means difficulty or badness. What's bad? <laughs> And Ka, and this is what was surprising, is the axle hole of a wheel. So dukkha means the axle of the wheel not fitting well into its hole. What happens when the axle doesn't fit well? It's a very bumpy ride. You know, and so. Could translate dukkha as bumpy right <laughs> or you know, kind of a a range of meanings: disharmony, or friction, or uneasiness, or stress, or unsatisfactoriness. <laughs> it's just just that image was so so uh, striking to me because I could just picture myself, especially uh, remember uh, when years ago we went to Upper Burma to, to visit the home monastery of Mahasi Sayado And it was the Mahasi Monastery. And Mahasi means big drum. And so that was the name of the monastery. And it was way, way out, I mean, way out in the Upper Burma. And for part of the ride, we were in this ox cart, just bumping along on this road. So when I read this, and I remember thinking to myself, that's dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> So it was a very uh, visceral image. But again, there's a subtle point here to understand, and it has strong implications for how we understand the practice. And that is the understanding that for this bumpy ride of phenomena to lead to suffering, There has to be the presence of craving. The craving is the cause of suffering. Suffering is not inherent in the phenomena itself. Only the way, it's only in the way that the unawakened mind is experiencing phenomena. So, while even in Arhant, somebody who's fully liberated experiences the dukkha of conditioned existence it's still a bumpy ride but there is no suffering because craving has been uprooted. So the Buddha begins the sutta by declaring that satipatthana, the abidings in mindfulness, to be the direct path to awakening. And he goes on and this whole sutta is laid out in a very systematic way. He then goes on to give a very concise definition. It's like a preview of the whole rest of the sutta. (coughs) He gives a very concise definition of the path. And he highlights just its essential characteristics First, he points out the four, or the appropriate, pastures for our mindful abidings. And the word in Pali for pasture is gochara, and I just always liked that word, you know, because the Buddha was always advising the bhikkhus, stay in your appropriate gocharas, stay in your appropriate pastures. Because if you go outside of these appropriate pastures, the abidings of mindfulness, that's when the mind is easily seduced by Mara. So he points out the four pastures for our abidings, and he also points out the accompanying qualities of mind that we need to cultivate. So again, as you listen to this, you know, as we go through this over the next weeks, please don't listen with a philosophic mind. You know, this, this is not kind of Buddhist philosophy. This is the Buddha giving very direct instructions. He's saying this is the direct path to realization. So that's how we want to hear it. He's talking to our experience. He's talking to our practice. So he gives this very concise definition, which will then be elaborated through the whole sutta. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four satipatthanas. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus, in regard to the body, A bhikkhu abides contemplating the the body, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to feelings, the bhikkhu abides contemplating feelings, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to the mind, the bhikkhu abides contemplating the mind, ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. In regard to dhammas, the bhikkhu abides contemplating dhammas, diligent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. So that's that's the outline of the whole sutta. Now as part of our cultural attention deficit disorder, I find that when I'm reading the suttas or listening to them, whenever I come across a whole series of repetitions, my mind just tends to skip over them thinking, oh, I, I, I heard that already. There is another possibility. You now, as the, as the Buddha repeats with each of these four abidings, he's repeating the words, abiding ardent, clearly knowing and mindful, free from desires and discontent. With each of the four abidings of mindfulness, the Buddha is repeating those qualities. Perhaps he actually is trying to tell us something that these qualities are important. These are the ones that we need to cultivate, these are the ones we need to strengthen. So I'd like to spend a little time just looking at what each of these qualities are so that we actually can begin to strengthen them in our practice. This is what the Buddha is suggesting we do. So the first of them, the first of these words is abiding ardent, ardently, with ardency. The Pali word is atapa, And it means this balance and sustained application of energy. But ardent, as we know from the English word, it has its own particular quality, flavoring the energy. When somebody is ardent, it means they're passionate. It means there's... Tremendous enthusiasm, it's characterized by a warmth in the relationship. We are ardent about something when we appreciate and see and connect with the value and importance of that particular experience of what we're doing. So when the Buddha is saying a bhikkhu abides ardent, clearly knowing, he's really suggesting this quality of ardency is suggesting kind of a, a passionate care with what's happening, a sense of continuity, a sense of perseverance. One of the familiar similes that's given for this quality of ardency you was know, of a person walking through a crowd carrying a pot of water or oil on their head. Yeah, you know, you've, and if you've been, you know, in Asia or other places, you're probably familiar with seeing people carry these big pots of something on their heads, and it's quite amazing how. You know, they can do it. But the little twist in this is that in the simile, there's a person walking behind with this big sword, and if one drop of water falls from the pot, we'd probably be quite ardent. (laughs) We'd be caring. We'd be careful. We would have a certain enthusiastic devotion to not spilling the water. Just from another side, perhaps slightly less uh, threatening side, uh, there was a a recent uh, Chinese Zen master Su Yun. And I think maybe he died in the 1950s. He's he's a in the last century, he practiced until he was eighty, and then he taught for the next forty, year, uh, next 40 years. He lived to one hundred and twenty, and he used this phrase, which totally exemplifies his life. He used the phrase "the long enduring mind," you know, and that's this quality—quality quality of ardency. You know, where we have this devotion to the moment with continuity, with perseverance, with a long-enduring mind. That's what gives strength to our practice. So how can we develop, how can we strengthen this quality of ardency, Because as you know, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. One way to call it forth, especially at those times when we're feeling the lack of it, is to reflect on the purpose of our practice. What are we doing? to really reflect on the dharma because we all know and it's what brings us here together is that the dharma is this jewel of priceless value you know and we really do understand it as being the source of every happiness and of the deepest kind of happiness this was expressed very well by the famous Thai forest master, in fact, the, the kind of, say, the grandfather of the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Mun. He said, of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, then Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. That says it all. Of all the many things that the people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. So it's reflecting on that, you know, when we reconnect with that understanding, which we all share, I and mean, it's clearly why we're here when we reflect and reconnect with that, it does create this strength of ardor. That's how we then abide through all the changing experiences. We reflect on the rarity of connecting with the teachings and the opportunity to practice you know, it's amazing when we look about at what's happening in the world. The great blessing of somehow in our lives having come in touch with teachings of liberation, teachings to awaken and purify the heart and mind, and not only coming in to contact with the teachings, but somehow being inspired to practice them, And not only being inspired to practice, but actually making the effort to practice in this way is tremendously rare. And so when we appreciate that, it really leads to a very great respect for the Dharma, respect for our fellow yogis, respect for ourselves. So this quality of ardency is strengthened when we connect with the purpose of the practice, taking care of this precious mind, when we reflect on the rarity of conditions which allows us to do it. This feeling of ardency, of passion for practice, also comes when we reflect on and see very deeply the transient nature of all phenomena. Now look at all the things that we identify with, we think are important and get attached to. Whether it's people or possessions or feelings that we're having, conditions of the body, or mind states. You now, all of these things that we get identified with and so attached to, all of them are just part of this transient flow of phenomena. Not one of them is exempt from the truth of change. And nothing at all can prevent this process, this universal process of growth, decay, and death. Now this is just the truth of how things are. So when we don't deeply see it, when we don't deeply understand it, then we devote ourselves and our lives and even our meditation practice to just wanting something or getting something or accumulating something. Now how often do we come into practice just wanting a peaceful sit or a pain-free sit, you know, and that kind of becomes our goal, our unspoken goal, because we've forgotten, or at that time, we're, we're not seeing the transient nature of all of it. And so we lose a sense of order in our practice You know, we just get caught so easily in all the appearances of samsara. And in that we solidify the sense of self, the sense of I. There's no peace. I'd like to read something. This is from The Life of Shabkar who was uh, one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters, I think of the 18th century. And he just was a wandering monk. Uh, And his teachings are beautiful. I mean, it's just often expressed in verse form. Uh, So this is just one little... I mean, as you can see, his life is... (laughs) full and ardent. So I just want to read this, it's kind of a reflection on transiency and how it can stir and arouse this feeling of ardency, of passion, of care. Another day, I went out for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me, one particular flower waving gaily on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard the song in the rustling of its petals. This is the song of the flower, an offering. My father and mother are the sky and the earth. I am the child nurtured by warmth and moisture. See how beautifully I display my fine petals, waving them in the 10 directions. They are my offering to the three jewels. Listen to me, mountain dweller. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But in fact, you even lack awareness of impermanence and death, let alone any realization of emptiness. For those with such awareness, outer phenomena all teach impermanence and death. I, the flower, will will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom. Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently with the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. When the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now, I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will chill these vivid colors till turning brown I wither. Thinking of this, I am disturbed. Later still winds, violent and merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. When faithful patrons turn up, you sit in a dignified manner. When they shower you with lavish food, you smile with satisfaction. Right now, you look well enough, but you won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome aging will steal away your healthy vigor your hair will whiten and your back will grow bent. When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remain still. In reply I sang, "O brilliant exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed. But what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can be done? The flower replied. I make this offering an offering to the infallible three jewels. We too must now do as I say. Among all the activities of samsara There is not one thing that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolved not to be attached to these lush meadows, even now in the full glory of my display. Even as my fettles unfold in splendor. You too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging. Meditate in solitude. Seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. It goes on and on. but What's so amazing to me is that I think for many of us, for all of us, On some level, we know that things are changing. We know that nothing will last. We know this body is going towards old age, decay, and death. But there's something missing. You know, there's some part of our mind doesn't really know it, doesn't deeply connect. And so I see the beauty of this practice and this opportunity to practice as just deeply, deeply integrating this wisdom. Because when we see it, when we see it clearly, the mind does let go of clinging. It does let go of grasping. We do abide in the great peace, in the great serenity. So this is another way to strengthen this quality of order that the Buddha is suggesting we bring to our practice. You now we reflect on the preciousness of this mind, the rarity of the opportunity, the truth of the transiency of phenomena. And the last reflection that helps establish us us in ardent practice is realizing that the only things that can be said to truly belong to us are the actions that we perform and their subsequent fruits. Now the Buddha said often, reminded us often that results follow actions like a shadow follows us. So when we understand this, it can really strengthen our enthusiasm. We see that our actions, each action, has such tremendous consequence. What are we doing with our lives? What are we doing with our practice? What are we doing with our time here? What choices are we making? You now, one point earlier on in my practice, when I was doing long retreats, unlike the rest of you, my mind just loves to think. You know, and so I could kind of sit there and think quite happily. You know, and entertain myself, especially you know, after the practice actually had deepened a bit. And so it didn't feel like an agitated restlessness. I was like, you know, there was a certain level of concentration. So I was sitting quite comfortably. The energy was flowing. And then just entertaining myself with all kinds of thoughts. At a certain point, after just watching this over and over again, I remember this line has stayed in my memory, because it was, such a, it was such a vivid moment for me. I remember saying to myself, Joseph, do you want to think, or do you want to get enlightened? And it was just that quality of seeing, what am I doing? What choice am I making here? Right? Do I just want to indulge these patterns, or can I arouse this you know, And say, no, this, this is not helpful. It's not where I want to go. So when we have this quality that the Buddha repeated, you know, in the refrain, with each of the abidings of mindfulness saying, abide ardently. When we have this quality and when we develop it in these various ways, it really strengthens what you know we could feel or think of as a courageous heart. It really gives us courage to be with all the many ups and downs of our practice, because we go through many difficulties. Now, this path of practice is, as you well know, not a path of uninterrupted bliss. It's not what it's about. So we need that courage. And it's this quality which brings it. Okay, the second quality the Buddha is recommending to us. Here, bhikkhus in regard to the body, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing. Clearly knowing is a translation of the Pali word sampajano. It means clearly knowing, it means fully aware. It's our ability to clearly comprehend what it is that's going on, what it is that we're doing. And so, this quality, sampajano, is the investigation, it's the wisdom factor. Now, ardency was connected with the energy factor. Sampajano is the wisdom factor. So again, I want to read from the Satipatthana Sutta. It's a whole paragraph of teaching about clear comprehension. And so it will give you a very unambiguous sense of what this quality is. Again, bhikkhus, when going forward and returning, a bhikkhu acts clearly knowing or fully aware. When looking ahead and looking away, bhikkhu acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending the limbs, a bhikkhu acts clearly knowing. When wearing the robes and carrying the outer robe and bowl, a bhikkhu acts clearly knowing. When eating, Drinking, consuming food and tasting, a bhikkhu acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, a bhikkhu acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent, a bhikkhu acts clearly knowing. So again, this is it's very explicit, you know, and that's the beauty of this whole sutta. This whole sutta of instruction on the direct path to liberation, the Buddha is just laying it out for us. He said, this is what we need to do. We abide contemplating the body, ardent, clearly knowing. On retreat here, just by way of extension, We might add explicitly to this whole list, which is pretty exhaustive, but we might add some particular activities that impact your fellow yogis. So, when opening and closing doors, a yogi acts clearly knowing. When entering and leaving the hall, a yogi acts clearly knowing. You could go down your favorite list of annoying, disturbing activities. Now, this aspect of clear comprehension, as you can see, is very wide-ranging. It's all in It's really saying whatever we're doing, moment to moment, we should abide clearly knowing, fully aware of what we're doing. Now what this opens up for us is the possibility of seeing our motivations. And then to choose before acting, is this wholesome, is it unwholesome? Is this something worth doing or worth not doing? One of the great disciples of the Buddha name was Anuruddha. Uh, and Anuruddha was foremost in the divine eye. He had that great power. Well, at one point he was living in a woodland park um, with a few other, few other monks. And the Buddha came to visit and asked Anuruddha, are you all living together harmoniously? And Anuruddha said, yes, yes, Bhante, we are. So then the Buddha asked, well, how how do you go about living harmoniously? And I like this particular exchange because it's so relevant to all of us living in community together. And Anuruddha said, they live together harmoniously because then he was then speaking of himself that he would think, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these others wish to do? And it was through that thought that they found themselves living together harmoniously. Why don't I set aside what I wish to do and do what these others wish to do? Now on a silent retreat like this, there may not be that much opportunity you know, to really be considering or even know what others are wishing to do, but it points to, I think, an essential attitude for living together in community, and that it's an attitude of care for each other. And so then instead of simply practicing the Brahma-Viharas, this aspect of clear comprehension actually allows us to live the Brahma-Viharas. We're relating to one another with a feeling of care. So I think this is tremendously important. And if we can't do it here, what can we expect from the world? You know, and so it's just a tremendous opportunity because in this refinement of environment. We can see so clearly the subtleties of our minds and our hearts and our feelings. And obviously it's not that we should have some notion that we're gonna be saints and perfectly loving feelings all the time and not get irritated and annoyed. But with clear comprehension, with Sampajanho, we know, we see that arising And then there's the choice. Do I act on this or do I let it go? What is the motivation? Often people find Sampajano the hardest to maintain during the times between sitting and walking. You know, we might have it pretty down when we sit, when we walk. But are you really practicing it? In your room, you know in all the various little little activities you do in the room, or going from one place to another, or if you go for a walk, or in your yogi job. Again, I want to emphasize that this is not... <laughs> this is not just some nice Buddhist idea. This is the Buddha telling us, this is the direct path to realization, abiding, clearly comprehending, fully aware. So if that is our aspiration, if that's what brings us here together, this is how we want to practice. And of course, sometimes we'll be there with it and sometimes we forget, but if it's in our mind, yes, this is what I'm cultivating and we do it with ardency, it gets strong. It gets more and more powerful. So I think I'm going to just stop here, this place in the sutta. And just over the next weeks, basically just keep going through it because each section is so rich and offers so much in terms of understanding our practice. I would like to end, though, with just an underlying underlying attitude which can hold everything we do. And that is that with a growing awareness of ourselves, of our own hearts and minds, we begin to see that our practice is not for ourselves alone. And this just feels so important to me, especially in the solitude of practice in a place like this, to really remind ourselves daily of course, as you know, this, this is really the teaching of bodhicitta that our practice is not for ourselves alone. We can undertake it with the motivation, with the aspiration, that it be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And we dedicate our practice to the welfare and benefit of all. You know, and this was the Buddha's words to his first group of enlightened Monks, He said, go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good benefit and happiness of all. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duties. Well, I just find for myself, connecting with this aspiration, Brings tremendous strength and energy you know, to my practice and to my aspiration for awakening.